Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Civil War monuments have been a hot topic for the last few years, but one scholar has had his eye on the issue since long before the current controversy. From a monograph in 2004 to the noted book Civil War Canon, Sites of Confederate Memory in South Carolina in 2015, Professor Thomas J. Brown has been exploring the unspoken messages carried in the monuments that past generations created to remember the war. Now he has a new book that will change the way you look at Civil War monuments and what they tell us about America's national identity. It's called Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. And we'll talk with author Tom Brown tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not representing the university, not representing North Carolina, not representing anything but myself. And my guest, likewise, will speak only for his own very own self, no one else. It's the last week of February 2020. We had snow last week here in Greenville, unusual, first time in a couple of years, but only one day's worth didn't mess up the teaching schedule, don't have to redo my syllabus because of it. And within 24 hours, the team was back out playing baseball uh, and winning. ECU baseball is won four in a row. Last weekend, the softball team also won three games. Uh, both the men's and women's basketball team won their games. Uh, the men won the league championship in swimming and diving. Uh, men's tennis, women's lacrosse, everybody won. This has not happened in 15 years, 16 years However long I've been here at East Carolina, never seen a weekend quite like that. And I shared in the good news in that my secret parking place was available again this week. Uh, 
students in History 3225, if you're listening, there's a secret parking place that no one else seems to know about in the flood lot on uh, College Hill. But I'm not going to tell you where it is. Uh, I did mention it in an earlier show. You can go back and listen if you want. Uh, I'm, I want to keep using it myself. Uh, in other ECU news, before we move back to the Civil War era, I last week, optimistically said the bribery scandal here at East Carolina had simmered down. The uh, the two members of the Board of Trustees who tried to bribe a student to run for office and then do their bidding with the vote they get on the, the trustees board. Uh, one of them resigned. Uh, well, the other one resigned last week also, but he put out a farewell letter to the uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, the State House in North Carolina, in which he closed with the line, good luck in your attempt to become the next chancellor at ECU, which the Board of Governors tried to expunge from the letter, but too late it got out in public. So everyone knows if they didn't already that a politician with no academic experience whatsoever is uh, trying to get the job that is currently held by an interim. it's not clear why so many people want this job, why you'd want to be chancellor at ECU right now, given that the last two were driven out by by the same uh, people appointed by the the, the, the House of Representatives, uh, the, the Board of Governors. They, they've, they've driven out two consecutive chancellors. Why you'd want this job, I, I guess it must pay well and must look like an easy job. You go to football games, you harass the the faculty, uh, put them in their place with good old-fashioned business discipline, better still fire them all, replace them with videos of somebody giving a lecture 20 years ago. But for whatever reason, um, hopefully the exposure of this guy's attempts to become chancellor will weaken the ability of him actually doing it. It would be yet another disaster for the university if that were to go through. Hopefully it won't happen. I'll keep you appraised of that. And I'll keep you appraised of what's happening here at Civil War Talk Radio, where we will continue to talk about the past regardless of what happens in the present. Next week, uh, March 4th, we will have uh, a book about the violence within the Andersonville prison camp. Uh, the Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee, and the Civil War's most notorious prison camp. That's the name of the book. The author's name on the cover is Gary Morgan, and we'll we'll talk with the author next week. The following week, uh, March 11th, that will be a week of spring break here at ECU, and I will be uh, somewhere uh, kicking back, chilling, relaxing, actually probably grading exams or preparing lectures for the rest of the semester, or writing a talk for the upcoming Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College. Don't forget, that is coming up in May, no, in June of 2020. Call Gettysburg College, look them up on the internet, find out about the Civil War Institute. It's a week of outstanding presentations, uh, and my presentation as well. And uh, if you mention that you're a listener to this program, they'll give you a discount for that. So no live show on March 11th. March 18th, we'll have a couple more shows in March of 2020. Michael Bonner uh, has written about Confederate political economy. And on March 25th, Cody Marr's new book, Not Even Past, The Stories We Keep Telling About the Civil War. So lots going on. One more thing to mention before we jump into the the show. Uh, 
Well, one thing, always, as you always know, you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney will print out, will post who's going to be on the show next, or who was on the show last. That's where you've downloaded this probably from. Uh, so today I was working on uh, tonight's program, uh, reading the book, taking notes, and the phone rang. phone doesn't ring unless it's a spam call. And it was somebody who wanted to know if I was an author, if I had written a book called Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. I said yes. Would I like to promote the book by being on a radio interview? Well, I said, okay. Have you ever done a radio interview before? I was asked. I said, well, uh, almost 500 of them now. Uh, oh, well, that put them back. Uh, and then... Uh, we got a little further into it. They said, you'll be on a show called People of Distinction. Uh, Al Cole of CBS will be the interviewer. This We are Author Reputation Press. We will get you all this publicity. And I waited for the shoe to drop. And they said, it requires an author's investment. How much, I asked. Uh, $1,200. Wow. Uh, I explained that's not how publicity works in the real world. And they said, well, self-published authors need to do this. And I said, I'm not self-published they said, oh, in that case, goodbye. And that was the end of that call. But now I know 1,200 is a magic number that I will be asking Professor Thomas J. Brown for in a few minutes and uh, maybe call all the past 500 guests, guests, see if they would kick in $500. No, kick in $1,200. Uh, that can be the new model for this program, get the guests to pay up front, and that's how we'll determine who gets interviewed. Well, no, we're not going to go that direction. Never have. Don't plan to. But I was fascinated to find out that people are running rackets like that. Um, instead of running a racket like that, I just run the racket where I ask you to give me money. Uh, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and donate there, and everybody's happy. Well, tonight we have, as a guest, a returning friend of the show, uh, for the third time, not many get that opportunity, but Thomas J. Brown has written books that have been worth talking about for decades now, and he comes back to the show tonight. Uh, Tom, are you there? Yes. Good evening, Jerry. Hey, good, good to hear from you again. It, it is evening. Well, thank here. you. Yes. Thank you for having me on. Well, it, it's uh, it's always a pleasure. Enjoyed uh, the previous book, certainly. Uh, and I always enjoy the excuse to remind listeners uh, that, like you, uh, I also have a degree from Harvard University. And it's important to, to keep that in front of the listening audience uh, as often as possible so that they, they, they develop uh, appropriate respect. Uh, well, so uh, I, I, I knew it would be fun to talk to you. I had not appreciated how valuable this opportunity was until you um, described the going right for these interviews. Well, I had no idea, but I, I, I was about to hang up on the guy uh, when he said there will be an investment from the author. And I thought, okay, so this is a scam. But I thought, I wonder how much, because you know, I interview people, and, and how much how much does he get people to pay him? And when he said 1200 my jaw dropped. I thought, wow, that is bold. Uh, I, I, I don't think I would not recommend paying me twelve hundred dollars to do this show, uh, but would happily accept it. Well, let's not talk about that. Let's talk about this uh, uh, work you have here. This this follows a real uh, you know, trajectory, uh, a research arc, as it were, uh, through your career. You've been writing about Civil War monuments uh, and and Civil War memory for. You know, almost two decades, and 
when a book like this comes out, people must see it on the shelf and go, oh, yeah, you know, Charlottesville, um, you know, uh, Charleston, he's taking advantage. He's just writing about what's currently popular. Uh, but you can't write a history book on, on the spur of the moment. You can't do it in six months or eight months. You, you've got to spend time. You've been doing this for, for, for 15, 20 years, and now it's it's the talk of the, the world. Well, yes, I'm, I'd um, like to think that I could turn something out so quickly. But um, as you say, this is a book that has taken a very long time. So, so did you know – I mean, you couldn't have known, but did you have a sense – 15 years ago that this topic would ever command the public's attention, not just the listeners to this program, people who are interested in the Civil War era, but uh, that it would be you know, on talk shows and news and everybody would be concerned about uh, what was happening with Civil War monumentation. No, that, in fact, that, that question raises a good point. Uh, you know, no, matter, I've, no matter how immersed one is in, in one's historical topic, it's not necessarily um, going to prepare you to predict the future. And I um, did not foresee the, um, you know, the, the intensification of protests against Civil War monuments um, by any means. Um, yeah. So um, no, not not at all how I not at all how I got into it. I, I did not did not see that coming, um, and did not you know so didn't organize did you get the into book it? Or, Well. Um, you know, my, my first book, my dissertation, uh, back when we were uh, both graduate school, was about uh, Dorothea Dix, who was, mm-hmm. you know, one of the most admired women in the country in the 15 years before the Civil War. And the reason I was interested in her was um, she's somebody who really lost her reputation in the Civil War. And I was interested in what that showed about kind of changing values in the Civil War, which is something I've always been interested in. And... and um, the long chapter about the Civil War ends with her uh, um, taking the lead in the making of a, a monument to the Union dead at Fortress Monroe. And the monument was full of all kinds of private meaning for her and kind of got me interested in these these monuments as um, you know, complicated sites of memory for their sponsors and for everybody who, who sees them. Um, and it kind of continued this interest in the connection between the war and sort of attempts to to define it through ideals. So, you know, as you say, none of us could have imagined that this would have gone uh, in the direction it did, that it would have become as uh, incredibly important all around. Let me start at the beginning with uh, the point you make at the start of this book is how unmilitary the United States was as a nation, uh, as a society before the Civil War, and how uh, just what an absence of monument, not just military monument, monumentation, but any monuments uh, uh, there were in the landscape. Yes, and, and um, you know, military monuments are really the heart of that genre. Um, and the United States, not just, it, it's not just that, you know, whatever, the United States was young or something like that. Um, it, you know, the country had been around for a long time. There's a lot of remembrance of the revolution. Um, the United States had in many ways um, explicitly turned its back on that cultural form. Um, it, in the 10, 15 years before the war, particularly after the Mexican War, there are increasing um, attempts to sort of bridge the gap there. And you have monuments in that period, the late 1840s, 1850s, 
that try to kind of speak to the Western war memorial tradition, but to, to Americanize it. Um, you know, these kind of late monuments to George Washington, the late, late 1850s monuments to George Washington. Um, and that is, that, that marks, you know, it's, it's still a, a country that is very skeptical about the, the war memorial tradition inherited from, you know, imperial Rome and monarchical France and England and things like that. Um, but it's, it's a very uh, tepid, you know, kind of foot in the water compared to what's going to come after the Civil War. And and military display in general is is not significant. You, you talk about how the militia has you know, decayed and people don't take it seriously. I was reminded of Abraham Lincoln's description of the militia in 1852 in Springfield, how it had become a, a satirical event. People showed up in costume, not in uniform, and paraded around uh, uh, for fun and had no intention of, of actually you – know, expecting to ever serve or fight. Uh, but that will, will change dramatically. In, in fact, let's take a short break right now, uh, come back and talk about the beginning of Civil War monument construction in the years, actually not even after the war, but during the war itself. Uh, we'll find out how this all started. We'll find out where it went and how quickly it changed the way Americans thought of themselves. And we'll do that by talking with our guest tonight, Thomas J. Brown. He's the author of Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams. Each week, join Lemont as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu 
www.prokopowicz.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Thomas J. Brown, author of Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. We just started talking about the the anti-military tradition that prevailed in pre-Civil War America. But once the war begins, uh, you, you start to see monuments appear. Uh, even during the war, the soldiers put them up, uh, you know, at, at – uh, Stones River, for example. Uh, Tom, you described the one at, at Rowlett's Station, Kentucky, that 32nd Indiana constructed uh, for their engagement there. But Friends of yours in the Army of the Ohio? Yes, the Army of the Ohio. I, I, I wrote about that particular engagement in, in my dissertation. Uh, I remember. And mm-hmm. it, it was... Uh, it, which I think still to this day is more important than uh, than most people recognize for its contemporary effect. And so I was uh, delighted to see your description of it here uh, and how significant it was that the soldiers wanted to remember the individual names of, of people uh, who fought in the battle. Uh, that that was that was a big part of the early monumentation was recording names, not not simply putting a figure on top of a pedestal. Absolutely. Is, I mean, a fascinating regiment, um, you know, uh, commanded by this, uh, you know, German socialist who had been a longtime Prussian officer and had a keen sense of the country that had the most fully developed sense, of, you know, set of war memorials, really, or to the extent that you had memorials to common soldiers, although in, in Prussia, the common soldier memorials were mostly ways of recognizing the, the king. Um, and he wanted to do something different. You know, he wanted to do something Republican. Um, in his his command of this regiment in in the Civil War, um, and came up with a very you know uh, determinedly Republican uh, form and ritual um, after the Battle of Rowlett Station. The the format of these early uh, monuments uh, you point out in the book and others, uh, Kirk Savage and others have pointed this out. They, they focus on the common soldier. They don't. They're not the the man on horseback, the equestrian statue of a general. Uh, we'll see that later. But I was interested to learn that this movement sort of I wouldn't say petered out, but but really declined uh, not too long after the war, and it wasn't till. Uh, a couple decades later that you see a real resurgence of the soldier monument. Uh, why, why did it go away and why did it come back? Well, the, the first wave there, the, the monuments that begin during the war and continue for a decade or so afterwards, um, you know, they're really all about the death toll of the war. Um, an awful lot of, they're, they're um, heavily centered um, in the north and particularly the northeast, which um, is partly because of the strong memorial tradition um, of New England and, and above all, Massachusetts. Um, but it's also um, because these community memorials are cenotaphs, right? Very few bodies of common soldiers come back. And so communities are putting up these monuments in place of the graves that they will not have. Um, and um, the, the, the num- not just the number of deaths in the war, but the fact that the bodies don't come back uh, you know, generates a, a cultural form that parallels the other kind of big innovations in remembrance of death. Memorial Day, um, the creation mm-hmm. of the military cemetery, 
Um, the community monument's one of those. Um, but that kind of runs its course. I mean, you know, you know as, as, um, as tremendous an effect as it was, you know, uh, by the mid-1870s, you're not seeing monuments put up that are direct response to deaths of people 10, 15 years ago. Um, the, instead, you see a decline um, in the, in the uh, commissioning of monuments. And when there's another wave in the 1880s, it's going to be a different wave. It's going to be a wave that is, that is much more um, veteran-focused. That is, uh, monuments are much more often going to be dedicated to everybody who served instead of exclusively to those who died. Um, it's going to be a different sort of thing. It's going to lead to different kinds of monuments. Well, exactly. It's going to note that you point out some of these monuments are not just statues on pedestals, but they are buildings. They're useful. Uh, the Memorial Hall at Harvard, uh, you, you write a good deal about it. It's one of the significant ones, which is both a place to remember uh, the men from Harvard who fought in the war, but it's also a dining hall. It's, it's also useful. Uh, and, and there yeah, seems to be a common thread. It, it was a common form. It was, it was an important form in the immediate aftermath of the war. It was a little bit of the anti-monumental tradition that predated the war. Um, some of the advocates of memorial halls, um, what they liked about them was that they were not monuments. And one of the things that they were a little worried about with monuments was that it singled out soldiers too much as, an, as exemplary figures. Um, and so you've got memorial libraries, uh, memorial town halls that are, that are and memorial educational buildings that are, are much more about uh, a process of citizen formation that is political, educational, um, and the idea is that soldiers will emerge from that, that it, a soldier, that the citizen makes the soldier, right, um, rather than what you're going to have later where the soldier makes the citizen. Yeah, as and the later memorial, said, later memorial Hall, this, mm-hmm. this is a good example. I mean, the, the kind of the organization of the book is around these various cultural forms. Memorial right. Hall is a good example of a cultural form that goes through a shift. The early ones are, you know, political educational buildings. The later ones are mostly um, facilities for veterans. Um, places right. for the, the veterans. The GAR halls that you see are you know, halls, throughout yeah. the Midwest. So, yeah. it, I mean, Jefferson said the, you know, the, the farmers, the... Uh, you know, God's chosen people, uh, uh, if he had any, uh, the idea of, of the, the farmer is the ideal citizen, the farmer is the man, is being Absolutely. replaced uh, uh, or will be replaced uh, over time by the idea that, that it's not the farmer who becomes a soldier, but it's the soldier who is the, the ideal citizen. So we start to see this, uh, and uh, the, the idea that American Civil War monuments are, are unusual in that they focus on the individual common soldier. is not not a new statement here, but you show how the actual form of the soldier evolves on these pedestals uh, that we begin, and, and other authors have said this, uh, with, with the picket, the individual soldier uh, standing there with his rifle. He's... He's not. He's not a farmer, but he's not quite. He's not a killer. He's not shooting his gun at anybody. Uh, he's just standing no, he, there. No, he, he's a um, um, a solitary figure. You know, he's he's separated from the mass. He's an individual. Um, he is um, a vulnerable figure. He's not an aggressive figure, um, and he's a figure that 
the, the public imagination associated with thinking about home, right? The idea um, of the song, All Quiet Along the Potomac, uh, which mm-hmm. is popular on both sides, is that the picket, as he's out there alone in the middle of the night, um, is, is thinking about, um, you know, the wife and kids at home. So it was a highly sentimental figure that um, in some ways um, emphasized uh, private, you know, intimate, familial relationships rather than the soldier as, you know, representative of the nation state. He, he often has his, his musket with the butt on the ground, two hands on the barrel, sort of leaning on it. You know, listeners, you can picture memorials you've seen like that. So he is contemplative, he's thinking, and he's not standing in a, a, a disciplined martial pose. He's an independent American. He's still, he chooses his posture. Uh, and, and he's yes, just... well, that, there's where you get, um, you know, beginnings of uh, of different ideas and, and you know and throughout the book you've got a lot of different monuments and they're they, you know, they're in they're in dialogue with each other they're debate they they um, uh, make different arguments essentially and um, as you say one one strand of this the idea is well you know the person is is taking is is completely um, you know an individual not in a prescribed position the mm-hmm. alternate idea is that um, the soldier is taking the prescribed position of parade rest, which is a, a position of ease, but it still mm-hmm. it, it suggests a, a formal context, right? Um, so, you know, kind of emphasizes that, that, you know, it is ease within a, a certain framework, right? And that now is that how, is, yeah. let's say the monument in Central Park, which is, which mm-hmm. is a very influential monument, how this, the monument in Central Park was publicized. Now this evolves into the, the from the the picket the individual soldier uh, to the standard bearer pose and I was just fascinated to read this because I had not put all these together and seeing how they 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 come along chronologically uh, you start to see more and more soldiers not bearing a musket but bearing a flag and yeah. the different functions that serves could you talk about that well, yeah, there, there are really very few monuments um, of flag bearers in the, the first um, 20 years or so after the war. Um, the few that there are uh, very much pick up on the, the wartime idea of the flag as, as very bound up with death, right? The standard bearer is, is a highly vulnerable figure. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got these uh, high-profile examples of putting flags on coffins that help to kind of sacralize the flag as a, as, as a, on both sides. Um, sacralized flags as these, you know, kind of death totems. Um, in the 1880s, um, later 1880s, you begin to see a different sort of um, standard bearer, and, and in larger numbers, um, that is um, more about um, discipline and alertness um, and engagement rather than death. Um, mm-hmm. And the standard bearer becomes uh, quite a common pose in the last 15 years, um, and is a, is a representative of this this kind of um, what I call militarized uh, vision of the citizen. And by and the, it, go ahead. Yeah. And it goes it goes hand in hand with other as well. I should say it goes hand in hand with. It's really it's one of the first stages in the emergence of the flag culture that people are very familiar with through the Pledge of Allegiance um, or the the custom of standing for the Star Spangled Banner, both of which are products of the early 1890s, um, or in the early 20th century, you know, Flag Day, um, the creation of the Flag Code, things like that. 
So the flag becomes this kind of uh, disciplinary instrument that um, is 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 used to try to uh, establish order in a highly divided, fractious nation, um, well, which it, is very different from the way it functioned during the Civil War. No, it, it coincides with the, this 1890s flag uh, uh, culture, you know, as, as listeners probably know, coincides with the uh, swell in, in immigration, uh, the 1890s, and then the following decade will become the uh, the biggest single percentage decade of immigration uh, in American history. So you've got people uh, now contesting how do we decide who's an American? What does it mean to be an American? And uh, flag discipline is one way of, of doing that. Uh, the The standard bearer is is uh, has all these characteristics again that I thought were fascinating that you described. That they uh, they are still an individual, not part of the mass. Uh, they're still not killing people. They're just holding a flag, but they're showing exemplary bravery because it's such a vulnerable position. They're still linked to the home because that's where the flags come from. Uh, but these are sub. But then this evolves into uh, what I wrote in my notes: action figures, which is what you describe yeah. those toys uh, as. But but literally <laughs> on the, the. But these are also action figures in action, and and this is something you didn't see in the 1870s or 80s. But now you've got guys running and shooting and. Uh, Absolutely, uh, and the, the, what's the happening? Flag, uh, the flag bearer becomes a real transitional figure in that. This idea that, um, you know, as you say, the flag bearer can start as a figure who's not unlike the picket, but become a figure um, not unlike, you know, a skirmisher. You know, somebody who is who is very engaged. Um, you know, that happens in that happens in the novel Red Badge of Courage, right? The uh, Henry Fleming, um, you know, winds up in this big kind of race for the flag. Um, it, it is uh, about it becomes about the heat of battle, right? The flag is is very much about the heat of battle, and a lot of these um, compositions at the turn of the century kind of center the flag on that. What was the role of mass production in these decisions? You know, I, I, no one's sitting there going, "Well, let's stop doing pickets and start doing flag bearers." Uh, but but where, how how does the manufacture of these statues play a, a role? Well, um, there's a lot of um, customer leeway here, right? I mean, there are catalogs. You can find catalogs from the 20th century um, at the very low-end budget um, of of the market. Um, But most of these um, that I discuss, um, the customer at least like to think, that there was something um, distinctive about them, right? People did not like to think they were buying a mass-produced object, and in many cases they weren't. They were buying um, an object that that came from a pattern but had been produced individually. So, you know, it it, it is not something where uh, you have big producers who, who are imposing a vision on the market, I would say. The the low end of the of the uh, spectrum is interesting because you, you start the book talking about iconoclasm in American history and the tradition, uh, the activity of destroying the statues of King George III during the revolution. And, uh, you know, and you end, and we'll get to this in our next segment, talking about the modern era of iconoclasm uh, in removing statues that represent the Civil War. 
none of them uh, destroyed by mob action like King George's uh, statue was, uh, except the one in Durham, North Carolina, that was was pulled down by uh, uh, a, a group of protesters and turned out to be very lightweight and hollow, uh, not a big yes. stone thing. Uh, people very were surprised. Flimsy, yes. how, yeah, that that's an example of a mass, a true, genuinely mass-produced monument. Yes, and and yeah, certainly there were a lot of those. Certainly there were a lot of those. I mean, uh, my strategy, I should say, was to concentrate mm-hmm. on how things changed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, as you say about the standard bearer, you know, when new designs came in and what the, what the new designs meant. So that kind of naturally uh, focused me on the artisanally created or, or you know, mm-hmm. or more in a more or a higher end version than the ones that were genuinely mass produced. Now, one of those that, that I was really struck by was the monument in Newburyport, Massachusetts, it went up in 1902, of a soldier who is walking forward with a determined stride. And yeah. you point out that this is much more significant than, uh, than one might guess looking at it. Uh, I'm looking at the window from uh, Andrew the Engineer reminding me we've got to take a break now. So we're going to take another short break and come back. And that's what I want to start with is why was that walking soldier so significant? Uh, We will find out from our guest tonight, Thomas J. Brown. He's the author of Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Thomas J. Brown, author of Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. 
We left off talking about a monument in Newburyport, Massachusetts, uh, not an hour north of uh, Cambridge, Mass. I used to venture up there in grad school days occasionally to purchase tiny Civil War soldier models at a hobby store there. Uh, long since gone, though. But still there is a, mo- a, a, a Civil War monument of a soldier who is walking determinedly. And, Tom, you suggest that was a, a watershed monument in many ways. Why is that? Well, um, there had not been many monuments that showed soldiers um, marching or striding, you know, advancing Mm -hmm. um, in in this way. Um, There had been monuments that showed soldiers in combat. There had been these flag bearers. But um, the Newburyport Monument, which was by a woman named Theo Alice Ruggles Kitson, and it's a good example of the ways in which you've got a monument by a substantial sculptor that is then replicated a number of times. So there is a mass production element to it, but the, those are endorsements of a, of a model by, by a significant artist. Um, anyhow, Kitson was um, interested in um, anthropometry, uh, the kind of the science of the body. Um, she was very in touch with people who were who were involved in what was called physical culture, the 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 uh, study of of uh, I don't know what we saw uh, kinesiology or something like that, mm-hmm. um, and that included the science of marching or the pseudo science of marching. Uh, some of it was very kind of anthropo- quasi anthropological, um, and the monument um, in some ways uh, illustrates these ideas of um, how a veteran. Um, Walks um, and which differ from the ways in which a civilian walks or a, a volunteer soldier might walk, um, and so it was um, a monument that illustrated um, the increased prestige of professional soldiers because the the idea of this kind of science of walking, um, in which the, the the principal theorist was a guy who was the um, orthopedics professor and later the dean of Harvard Medical School. The idea of this was that um, you know the 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 regular soldier, the professional soldier, um, takes advantage of the most effective, effective ways of walking. Um, the volunteer soldier doesn't know these things. So this was supposed to this was this was definitely um, a, an example of um, celebrating the veteran and by implication the professional, which. Um, as I say, the previous monuments, early early monuments, tend to be about celebrating the volunteer. So they they look homeward. Now we're looking at the soldier as a soldier, and of course, where this is being put out in 1902 in the immediate aftermath of the Spanish-American War, and uh, it's also a time when the regular army is gaining prestige and uh, priority over the volunteer tradition in America, the the Dick Act of 1903, and so on, that reorganized the regular army. Uh, so it, it's it's fascinating how this this figure can embody all this. Uh, Silent Sam, the monument uh, until recently on the campus of University of North Carolina, uh, you highlight in the same chapter another example of the the physicality, uh, the strenuous life, uh, and Silent Sam learns his most sublime lesson according to the pedestal uh, from war, not from uh, uh, not from the university. Yes, Silent Sam is not often discussed. The impetus for the monument was um, the 50th anniversary of the outbreak of the war and um, remembrance of the UNC 
um, students who left for the war uh, and the, the, the people who were still alive 50 years later were going to receive degrees at that 50th anniversary um, event, even though they had not followed the procedures for completing their degrees after the war. And it is part of a general argument that um, war is an education. Um, you learn a lot of things in the war that you don't learn in university. Um, and that, um, that uh, emphasis was very different from the emphasis that we talked about earlier, the, the idea of the farmer, the person, the, the earlier monuments um, basically envision the farmer bringing his virtue with him to war, right? That's where he got his virtue. He brings it with him, right? Um, whereas Silent Sam is about learning virtue, you know, that's, that's where you become a man um, and a citizen, right? You don't prove it in the war. You, you become it in the war, right? The, the kind of classic Cincinnatus figure, you know, Cincinnatus proved his virtue before he, but he proved his virtue by serving, right? He was a virtuous person before. But, but uh, Silent Sam uh, is, uh, is unformed. Um, he's a he's a he's a callow youth before he actually uh, goes into war, um, and and that's vividly illustrated in the monument. And it's the same with the Yale uh, monuments that have the four figures, uh, where, where the two of them have been compared to freshman and senior, uh, the undeveloped uh, model of devotion, and then the the, the much more physically buff and therefore virtuous. Uh, model of uh, was a courage, I think, is, is the other value there. Uh, yes, absolutely, and and uh, again, it, it connects this the sort of martial manhood to a process of education, um, and connects it also um, to a world of sports, right? Just as the the, the marching soldier um, that we talked about in Newburyport is about this kind of physical exertion, you know, the Yale Monument, which is put up right around the same time as the Yale Bowl, is, um, a, you know, is, it takes place in a broader context of um, a new athletic culture in the United States. You, you mentioned, uh, you have a chapter on victory monuments, and you mentioned the, the arch, victory arch at Camp Randall, uh, in the campus of the University of Wisconsin, uh, where you point out that here, victory in war is being associated with, I think you call them the, the hollow or meaningless victories of college sports. Um, those are fighting words, I have to say. Um, college sports are very important. Uh, but <laughs> well, the, 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 um, the earlier victory monuments, um, the, the earlier idea of the arch, right? The arch is a doorway. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, you know, you walk through the doorway and things are different. And the arch, for example, that... Um, um, Frederick Law Olmsted and, and Henry Hobson Richardson had planned for Buffalo um, that led from the busy city to um, Olmsted's uh, park layout for Buffalo and on to Niagara Falls was about, you know, you go through this arch and it's a process of transformation, um, regeneration. And that's, um, that is what the, the Arc de Triomphe in, in Paris was about, right? The Arc de Triomphe in Paris mm-hmm. is at the, the boundary of, of, of Paris um, going into the city, um, and it's about kind of civic identity, and, and you know, it's a meaningful passageway, right? Um, whereas the, some of the other ones, the later ones, including the Camp Randall one, it's not about you know, becoming a different person. It might mark a, mm-hmm. a site that people have fondness for. But it's not about social regeneration um, in the way that the early arches were. 
Now, th- these arches are victory monuments, and you, in, in your chapter on the victory monuments, you make the interesting point that these are, uh, that by the 20th century, certainly by 1914, any restraint on triumphalism that earlier generations might have felt has pretty much fallen away, uh, which is not surprising in the North. They won a great victory. It's a little surprising in the South, where they were soundly defeated, uh, yet triumphant victory monuments appear, not arches necessarily, uh, but throughout the South. How do they do that? Not not arches, partly for the, the inability to raise the money for them. Arches are expensive. Um, uh. There was a there was a you know concerted effort to make the Jefferson Davis Memorial in Richmond an arch. Um, it, it didn't raise enough money. They basically so made it an arch lying on its side instead. Um, you know, it's a it's a colonnade that, that right. sort of you know recalls the, the idea of an arch. But it is a very triumphalist monument, as you say. Um, and it shows the it, it, it you know goes along with the way in which, as I say, the the northern monuments shift from regeneration to affirmation. The Confederate monuments shift from recognition of defeat to claiming victory. Now they did have some victories to claim. I mean, I mean, kind of the natural um, interpretation of that was, um, you know, after the 1890s, there had been this you know reconsolidation of white supremacism through disfranchisement and. Um, convict lease and segregation and lynching. Um, and that was um, certainly part of the triumphalism of these later Confederate monuments. But there's also a, a certain disconnection from reality to it. I mean, they are, they are triumphal beyond the level of white confidence in the racial order. Right? They are, they are um, even, even a place like Appomattox, um, which you think would be synonymous with Confederate defeat, um, people see as a, as a a triumphal monument. The you have a, a fascinating chapter on equestrian statues and the uh, the urban legend code of how many feet are on the ground, uh, which uh, I'm sure listeners know, and, and they'll have to read the book to find out. It's not; it's just a legend. Uh, but I, I want to touch briefly in our last few minutes on uh, the First World War, uh, which affects both the way uh, Civil War monuments continue to be put up and uh, Civil War traditions that you describe in the rest of the book affect the way that that, uh, the First World War will be remembered in stone. But what really struck me uh, was a a comment you make about the Lincoln Memorial, which was conceived and and begun before the war, before World War I, and completed and dedicated afterward, that somehow the, the... it goes against all the grain. Uh, instead of a monumental, uh, triumphalist or militaristic setting, you have a seated philosopher king um, greeting visitors uh, with an expectant look as if to, uh, like an oracle, to answer their questions. What would Lincoln do? Let's go to Washington and ask him. Uh, he, and he's there to tell us, to, to give us hope. Uh, not at all. The, the trend in which things are going, bigger and grander and more militaristic, uh, how, how did we get lucky in that way? <laughs> that is a good question. And it goes to show that there, you know, there were different, um, different visions, uh, competing visions. Uh, there was pressure mm-hmm. on um, the, uh, Henry Bacon, the architect of the Lincoln Memorial, to, to um, recognize uh, the military context, recognize the, the, the commander's 
um, who serve under Lincoln. Um, and uh, it, it, it happens that um, Henry Bacon was uh, um, had different values and, and was a, a pretty um, had a real strong independent streak. Um, and his his vision was quite different. Um, his his was much more in line with this, as you thought, you know, the kind of philosopher king vision of Lincoln. And the Lincoln is somebody who used a um, representation of uh, humanistic values as opposed to the commander in chief. The uh, you have talked briefly about the the Bernard Lincoln statue that uh, Americans tried to give to uh, the British to put up in London, but. Robert Todd Lincoln did not like that version of his father, and they end up sending a much more uh, regal uh, Lincoln, the St. Gaudens Lincoln, than the uh, Bernard one. Many fascinating stories in this book. In your last chapter, and and listeners, I I can't say this enough, I am skimming like crazy over this book. It is so deep and so interesting, uh, and so many details on all these statues, where they came from, what they mean, who who paid for them and why, and, and who wanted something else. Uh, you, you have to read it yourself to get the full depth. But in your last chapter, you, you bring the story to the present, uh, as readers would expect, uh, pointing out in the, the post-World War II era how monuments uh, change, how Civil War monuments continue to be erected, but how monuments still draw on Civil War traditions, the links between the, the Vietnam Memorial uh, that, that all of us have, have seen, uh, maybe all of us have even been to, brings us back to where we started, names that, that you talked about in the very first Civil War monuments. Absolutely. The Civil War is, is very important in introducing what uh, uh, Thomas, the historian Thomas LeCur, it's called the age of necronominalism, you know, death and names. Um, and these lists of names of which the, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial becomes uh, you know, an especially effective example. You know, they trace back to the Civil War and to the ways in which those lists of names served as a substitute for having the bodies, because the bodies, generally speaking, did not come back to the North. And yet, you also point out it, it's the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's a memorial to the living as well, and that also takes after the the changing style of Civil War monuments. Yes, as, as we talked about, we talked about the flag. I mean, one thing that happens in the late 19th century is that really, for the first time, veterans emerge as cultural arbiters in the United States. Right? They had not had that position in the in the antebellum United States, um, and that continues after the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I mean, it is the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, um, and um, so you see, if to the extent that the common soldier part of the book builds upon two different strands of Civil War monuments. They both are expressed in the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Now, we are in this current era where people are questioning and changing everything. Uh, nothing could be more dangerous than, than the last question. Where do you see things going with uh, civil war and especially Confederate monuments in the next few years? Well, the, the book begins, um, the very first page of the book is a picture of a, um, a painting of a the uh, tearing down of the statue of George III um, in New York in 1776. Mm-hmm. And in, one, in some ways, what's really important in terms of dates is not 1776, but the date of the painting, which was um, in the 1850s. And, you know, a solid 80 years after that event, people were remembering that event in American culture. People saw that event as, a, as an important thing. And in terms of where I, you know, I, I think things are going, I, I think um, the important question is not so much, 
you know, how many more monuments will come down or anything like that is, is it, it, this, this kind of season of iconoclasm we've had, these, this, you know, the mm-hmm. um, monuments that have come down, um, how will that, um, how will that, that episode, you know, that experience um, live on in artworks um, or um, in literature? You know, how will it be renewed, right? Monuments have to be renewed. The Lincoln Memorial is renewed, you know, when there are events held there. Um, and similarly, the iconoclasm had to be renewed, and the iconoclasm of the George III monument was, was renewed very intensively. Um, and I guess what I am curious to see is how much our recent iconoclasm will be renewed by, you know, in forms other than taking down more monuments. Well, it's a fascinating topic. I wish we had more time. We are out of it. So we will stop here. But listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. UNC Press publishes it. Uh, The author is our guest tonight, Thomas J. Brown. Tom, it's been a pleasure talking with you again. Thanks so much, Jerry. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.